Hey everybody, this is Dave DeBroncart with our first episode of Power of the Patient, a podcast about democratizing healthcare, the new world we call participatory medicine, where patients are active members of the healthcare system, so everything works out better. Healthcare today is producing miracles we've never seen before. I'm a living example. In 2007, I discovered I was almost dead from kidney cancer. But in less than a year, I was cured. At the time, other patients told me, if you're gonna get cancer, this is the best year ever to do it. And it's only gotten better since. But at the same time, nothing's certain and the system's not perfect. And there's a lot you can do to help healthcare achieve its potential when it's your family facing a problem, large or small. When you get good at that, when you get good at helping the system achieve its potential, it means you're a powerful patient and we're gonna talk about how to achieve it. Since my cancer, I've become an advocate for rethinking the patient's role in medicine, traveling more than a million miles to hundreds of events in 18 countries. And one of the things I've learned is that often the best clear advice on a topic can come from our patient peers who have real personal level advice on how to get the care you need for yourself and your family. That doesn't mean we don't need doctors and hospitals, heaven knows, but sometimes it does mean shaking up the system because it's not listening. The plan for this podcast is to have lots of enlightening, fun, perspective-changing conversations with people who are first-hand experts on different parts of the system. We'll talk with doctors, nurses, economists, case managers, geriatricians, oncologists, pharmacists, and of course, lots and lots of patients and family caregivers. Our focus will be on things they all think it would be good for us all to know before we run into trouble and when we run into trouble. The whole point is to learn how to help healthcare achieve its potential so we all get the satisfaction of a job well done. What else can you ask for, right? In this introductory episode, I'll share some of my own story, how I played an active role in beating that advanced cancer, how all my doctors encouraged it, as your doctors should, and how I've learned since then that what I did has a name. I was being an e-patient, you might say a patient with ease, empowered, engaged, equipped, enabled, educated, you name it. So I'll share a bit more about that concept when the time comes. My travels have taken me around the world, as I said, from Australia in the West to Dubai in the East, from New Zealand in the south to Scandinavia in the north. Along the way, I've learned a number of things that at first surprised me, then amazed me, then puzzled me, and ultimately enlightened me. As the saying goes, the truth will set ye free, but first it may tick you off. We'll be right back with today's episode after this word from our sponsor. For most consumers, the search for a healthcare provider is a frustrating maze of bewildering choices and unanswered questions. And they really want to hear what other patients have to say in order to make a decision with confidence. With Loyal's Empower Solution, you have the tools to do just that. Empower your patients, the patient, and provide a solution. Maximizing star ratings while introducing deeper insights into what patients really saying about their experience. You could sort, approve, and publish patient reviews of physicians, services, and even practices using some of the intelligent features like auto-approval and syntax highlighting. To learn more, visit them online at loyalhealth.com. 
So much is rosy in healthcare today. It's the best year ever to get sick. Yet at the same time, too often the system falls short. That gap is where you can make a difference by learning what's worth knowing and knowing what's worth doing. You see, knowledge really is power. What do we mean by power? Well, when the World Bank goes into a developing nation where people have no idea how to manage an economy or a government, the World Bank says empowerment is increasing people's capacity to make choices and to take effective action to get what they want. That's what we'll be working on in this series. What you can learn that will increase your capacity to make informed choices and take effective action for yourself and your family. And if you're a healthcare provider, you can learn how valid it is for today's patients to go E, how you can welcome it and even help develop their skills. One last thing before we start. What do we mean by democratizing? Well, in a democratic system, the citizens have an active voice in how things go, and they have to be informed and involved. Pay attention to what's going on. Speak up and share the work. It's the same with democratizing healthcare. While medicine works to create better treatments, we the people can help if we wise up, speak up, and not expect everything to be done for us. You could say we need to earn our power and learn how to express it responsibly. Now, I'd like to share with you how this played out for me in my near-fatal cancer case, which will show you why I think it's so important that we all learn about the new reality of how patients can be active partners in what we call participatory medicine, another term for democratizing healthcare. People have said it's useful to understand what my background was because some people think I had some exotic combination of skills. Well, no. Believe it or not, my whole career before cancer was in the graphic arts industry, and then that evolved into software. I went to an engineering school, but I don't work as an engineer. I don't work as a scientist, you know. I'm just an ordinary citizen who grew up thinking, how can I be responsible? How can I be part of the system and do my part? Well, I worked specifically in high-tech marketing in the graphic arts. I like data, which it turns out is useful if you're getting into electronic medical records. I like technical trends. I like automation. But I have no biological expertise at all. In 2007, I discovered I was almost dead, as you'll hear, and got better in less than a year. And then I learned about this e-patient movement and started talking to people about it. One important theme early in my career is that long ago, the graphic arts industry experienced desktop publishing. And what happened there is called disruptive innovation. Specifically, it used to be that you had to be in a printing shop if you wanted to create pretty pages that could be printed. Anybody today who has any kind of software with fonts on their computer knows that that's no longer true. And there are some parallels here between what's happening in healthcare and what happened back then. What's happening today is that ordinary people are getting their hands on information that used to only be available to doctors. And indeed, doctors rightfully say, that doesn't make you a doctor. I'm the first to say that. I didn't even know I was sick, much less could I have diagnosed myself or done surgery to remove my kidney or known what medications were available. But that doesn't mean I'm a useless idiot when it comes to knowing things. Similarly, back then, people with no training at all in the graphic arts got their hands on fonts and started creating ugly pages. 
You know, we had things that we in the industry called ransom note typesetting because it looked like somebody had cut a different word out of a different page of a magazine and scotch taped them together to make a ransom note. Well, two important things happened which are beginning to happen in healthcare also. The first was that when you all out there without any background in the industry got your hands on the essential assets, the data, the fonts, and so on, the world started changing to work better for you. And this is what we're starting to see in healthcare. The other important thing that happened is everything got easier to use so that you didn't have to be so sophisticated to do a decent job. It doesn't mean that specialists don't exist. It does mean that ordinary people have more access to power, to producing the results they want, than they used to. So a recurring theme you'll hear in this series is that knowledge is power and data is power. To the extent that you can get your hands on your family's medical information, or your own at least, your ability to make informed decisions will improve. So start asking. It's funny, my personal primary physician, a great man named Dr. Danny Sands at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston, says, how can patients participate if they don't see the information? Well, here's how my cancer story unfolded. At the end of December, just before New Year's in 2006, so this is 11 and a half years ago, I went in for a routine physical, and one of my complaints had been that I had a stiff shoulder, no sharp pain or anything, but I said, in advance, I'd said, I'm probably going to need a shoulder x-ray. And indeed, Dr. Sands had ordered a shoulder x-ray for me. So right at the beginning of the new year, I got that shoulder x-ray. Notice that by thinking ahead, I didn't have to wait a month or three weeks for a referral. And that may be one factor in why I survived. Because I got that shoulder x-ray on January 2nd, 2007. And the next morning, Dr. Sands called at the office. And if you've ever had shocking news like this, you'll know what I mean when I say I can vividly recall the moment of that phone call. I remember what the desk phone looked like at my office when that call came in. He said, Dave, your shoulder's going to be fine. You just got a rotator cuff problem, but there's something in your lung that shouldn't be there. And that was a total coincidence. It's what the doctors call an incidental finding. I got a picture taken of my shoulder and it just happened to spot what turned out to be kidney cancer floating in my lung, a metastasis as they call it. And that's what, when it's metastasized, that's called stage four kidney cancer in my lung. More CAT scans and ultrasounds and everything eventually showed that I had tumors. Eventually, it turned out I had tumors all the way from my left thigh bone to my skull. And just for good measure, before my treatment started, a few weeks before that, I had a bump emerge out of my tongue. It was a kidney cancer tumor growing in my mouth. The tongue is a muscle, and only the most aggressive tumors grow in muscle tissue, I have learned. So, by the time I found a way to estimate my survival, it's interesting because my doctors correctly said there wasn't enough good data to give me a firm prediction, a prognosis as they call it. But I'm the kind of person, some people don't want to know and that's fine with me, I've got a big appetite for information. So I kept looking with my wife, she helped me. A lot of us have relatives who are more medically knowledgeable. My wife's a retired veterinarian, and she knows I'm not a dog, but she understands medicine and biology. 
By the time we found a website that had the ability to predict your survival, what I read was that for somebody in my condition, the median survival, half of patients were dead in 24 weeks, five and a half months. And that was just really sobering. Some people with the best of intentions will wonder, why would a patient want to go beyond what their doctors are doing. Well, I had no desire to go beyond what my doctors were doing, but I wanted to know as much as I could, because that's my personality, and see if there was any way that I could learn anything useful. Well, an important thing happened then. Dr. Sands is a pioneer of the e-patient movement that I talked about earlier, where patients are Patients with ease, empowered, engaged, involved. And he happened to know of a really good quality patient network on the internet. He happened to know of a really good patient network on the internet. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, my doctor sent me to the internet to talk to other patients. Now, that may shock you, but that's the modern way to do things. And wait till you hear what happened. I'm not making any of this up. I've been online since 1989, back on CompuServe, when you had to have a modem on your phone line and all that noise on the modem. Well, I joined this community. I waited a couple of days. These days on Facebook, people just jump in and start blabbing. But back then, it was polite to learn how people talk there. Then I posted my first message, and within two hours, consider the information I got. First thing they said was, Welcome to the club that nobody wants to join. Now, have you ever known anybody who had kidney cancer? I hadn't. And I felt very, very alone and isolated as a result. I had no idea what to expect. Suddenly, here I am talking with dozens of people who are in the same boat. That by itself made me feel not so alone. But then they started telling me interesting things. Uh, they said, first of all, this is an uncommon disease. Get to a hospital that does a lot of cases. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that. They said, as I mentioned in the introduction, this is the best year ever to get cancer. It's not, a, not good news, but you pick the best time possible. And you know, when you think you're trapped and completely screwed, and somebody points out a positive aspect to this that is not baloney, there's something to be said for that. And it's ironic because doctors and nurses are trained not to give us false hope. Well, if it's another patient in the same boat who's giving me hope, that's a whole different thing. Then they said, and this was back in 2007, they said there is no cure for this disease, but there's one drug that sometimes doesn't work. It's called HDIL2, high-dose interleukin-2. They said it usually doesn't work. But when it does, about half the time, it's permanent. That's interesting. That turned out to be me. I was one of the lucky ones. They said it usually doesn't work. But they also said the side effects are severe. They sometimes kill the patient, which is why you need to get to a specialist hospital. They said, don't let them give you anything else first. And here are four doctors in your area who do it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I assert that from the perspective of the person who has the problem, this is all useful information. Wouldn't you want to know this? And here's the catch. Okay, I'm scientifically trained, so it was a shock to me to discover that to this day, none of what they said 
exists in the scientific literature. Now, that doesn't mean the scientific literature is bogus. It does mean there is additional information that adds to the literature that can be found in patient communities. Now, people will often say, well, wait a minute, there's garbage on the internet. Indeed, there's garbage on the internet. I mean, I found my wife on the internet in 1999 on Match.com, but before I found her, I went through some suboptimal search results. This is why you got to wise up if you want to be part of the democracy. And it is possible to learn how to do that effectively. Well, to make a long story short, surgery and interleukin did work. The only surgery I had was the urologist removed my kidney with an amazing laparoscopic surgery. And beyond that, the only other treatment I had was the interleukin. It went off. See, interleukin is an immune system treatment, what they call immunotherapy. This stuff is new, but when it works, it is amazing. They didn't have to cut out all those other tumors. The, the body's immune system went everywhere from my cranium throughout the whole system. In the first week of treatment, that lump on my tongue fell off. Hallelujah. I mean, I was diagnosed in January. The kidney came out in March. The IL-2 treatment started in April and ended in July. I haven't had a drop of anything since then. Now, I assert that every patient ought to have the right to know that this drug exists as a treatment option. But today, there are many hospitals that won't even tell the patient it exists. I hasten to add there are new treatments today that are far less drastic and life-threatening that are much preferred compared to IL-2, but that's relatively recent news. The idea that treatments may exist that a local hospital might not tell you about gives you reason to go looking and just please, please, whenever you can, ask, are there any other options I should know about? Any good doctor, nurse, medical advisor will be happy to hear that question. They may at times prefer to have you stay at their hospital rather than lose the business, but you've got every right to go looking. Well, so I'm glad to be alive. A few years after that, I got to walk my daughter down the aisle, and now I'm a grandfather, and all I can say is it's great to be alive, and I am happy to be giving. I really felt like I was at the end of a video game, and it was about to say game over, and instead it popped up and said free replay. This is why I am so motivated to give this new lease on life, as they say, to the cause of helping everything about healthcare work out better. Now, another aspect about my background. See, the culture of medicine is changing, which means that what people are listening for out there is changing also. Democratizing, democratizing, keep that idea. A few years after this, the BMJ, formerly known as the British Medical Journal, one of the most respected medical journals in the world, came to me and said, we think your story should be published. And I thought, what the heck? But I mean, who am I to tell them they don't know what they're talking about? What's significant to me, none of this is anti-science or anti-establishment. There are parts of the establishment that don't know yet what's going on, but there are a lot of parts that are and welcome it. You know, and I've had doctors tell me after a speech that sometimes it's frustrating to them if they invite a patient to act like the way I did, and the patient says, well, what, are you trying to get me to do your job? You're the doctor. 
Well, culture change, right? The same as the roles of men and women have evolved. Heaven knows the change isn't complete, but the expected roles are changing. Hey, everybody, this is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information, and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. So here I am. I was a hippie in the 1960s. I'm all in favor of social change. And so when the BMJ invited me to write up my story, I thought this is going to get read by a lot of doctors. And I knew that my oncologist had said that he wishes he could bottle, I hope to have him as a guest on this show at some point, that he wishes he could bottle whatever it was I did and prescribe it to other patients. So I asked him, what would you want other doctors to know about my case. And what he said amazed me, and it's in print in the BMJ. We will put a link to it in the show notes for you. He said, you were really sick. See, some people think that my attitude killed the cancer. And I would never say, just have a good attitude and you'll all get better. He said, I have no doubt that the interleukin killed the cancer, but you were really sick. And I don't know if you could have tolerated enough medicine if you hadn't been so well prepared. How about that? One of the best oncologists in the world for this disease says in his view, he's not sure I'd be alive today if I hadn't taken action to be so engaged, empowered, educated myself. What was he talking about? He was talking about the side effects. Remember, the patient community told me that the side effects sometimes kill a patient. And so I thought, all right, See, now the passive thing to do, the old-fashioned passive patient would sit back and say, well, if there's anything I need to know, I'm sure they'll tell me. That's just not my style. And you're welcome to do that if you want. My style was to say, okay, side effects might kill me. How do I prepare? And they said something very interesting. They said, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked us that. So they had no advice. Isn't that interesting? So, and notice also, all the things the patients had said to me, I didn't go rogue and just ignore the doctors. To the contrary, I brought those things to the doctors, and they said, those patients are right. So in this case also, first I asked the doctors and nurses, my care team, how do I prepare for the side effects? They didn't have an answer, so then I asked the patient community, and I got 16 first-hand stories from people who'd been through it. Now, if you were going to get a rare treatment that might kill you, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to do? It's not always as easy. You can't always find a great patient community, but increasingly today's, that's what you do. Well, in my case, The first side effect that hit me was a thing called Rigers. I started having this uncontrollable shaking, and I knew, ah, this is called Rigers. You call the nurses, they bring a hot blanket that you warm up, you keep shaking for a half an hour, and then it's over. And each side effect that hit me, I knew what was going on. And I've since learned that because so many doctors don't want to scare you with things that might not happen, they don't 
tell you about it. I, in my case, I ultimately, I did have a life-threatening side effect, something called capillary leak syndrome. The immune system treatment made the walls of my blood vessels open up. All the fluid ran out. My legs were like big water balloons. And as a result, my blood pressure just crashed to 50 over 30. I could have died, but because I was in a specialist hospital, they knew what was happening. They knew what to watch for. They discontinued the treatment. I only got about two-thirds of the planned doses. But as you heard, with this stuff, if you respond at all, there's about a half chance that it'll be a complete response, and that's what happened to me. So now, let me just say, hallelujah for great medicine. How can it be? See, here's the crux of the question scientifically. We are trained to trust scientists. So how can it be? How could it possibly be that the most current, up-to-the-minute information about dealing with this disease could possibly exist in a patient community outside of traditional channels? Does this mean that science is corrupt? That it's all a crock? Some people will tell you that. I don't believe that. Instead, if you think about it carefully, here's what has changed compared to 50 years ago. Because of the web, Patients can connect to information now and each other in ways that were not possible before the internet, before the web. And in fact, since I speak to medical audiences, it was really useful when I came up with an analogy here. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. There's a diagram connecting a bunch of stick figures. You can just imagine everybody's all connected, like six degrees of separation and all that stuff. And I realized that in a medical emergency, information is like a nutrient. It enables a healthier response. And these dotted lines connecting us all are exactly like capillaries in the body. These are the pathways by which an information nutrient can reach the point of need without centralized control. This doesn't mean that old-school medical expertise is dead. It means that there's something new that's possible, and I assert it can save a life. Now, as I wrap up, this part of the show, uh, I want to mention that this is not something that's a completely new, crazy idea. There's a senior physician at my hospital named Dr. Warner Slack, who's been saying all the way back since the 1970s that patients are the most underused resource in healthcare. At the time, he was initially talking about you and I being able to enter our information in the computer before we got to the doctor visit. Isn't that a fascinating idea? Only now is medicine really beginning to enable that. But you can think about it in a more open-minded way as well. The founder of the e-patient movement, what we now call participatory medicine, was a doctor named Tom Ferguson who came out of Yale Medical School in the 1970s. And he saw from the get-go that the vast majority of what you and I do is take care of our families at home. You know, somebody gets a cut on their finger or they've got a cold or whatever. We go to get health care when the needs go beyond what we're capable of. He thought, you know, as an MD trained at Yale, he thought, let's give people more information. And so he published a magazine back in the 80s called Medical Self-Care. On the website, there's a wonderful picture of him being interviewed by a very young Dan Rather back then. Then he published a compilation of articles called in a book called Medical Self-Care. 
And in the 1990s, he published the first book about health online. And as it happens, much to my surprise, when I got a copy of that book a few years ago, I found myself in the index because I was on CompuServe way back when. In 2009, I had started blogging about e-patients just to share my thoughts with the world, these empowered patients in participatory medicine. I tried to send my medical data to Google Health way back then. This was before everybody was as worried about privacy as we are today. Uh, I had said, I'm not going to trust Google with my information. But then I realized I'd like to start the kind of innovation that we had in desktop publishing. And if we're going to give software people the chance to develop things to help us do what we want, they got to have some data. So I decided to send my medical record to Google. I blogged. I said, I don't trust them any more than I ever did. But what the heck? I mean, what have I got to lose? It's not like, I mean, I was going to be dead by now, right? Well, what came across to Google Health was garbage. And it turns out the hospital that had saved my life had a whole bunch of wrong information about me in their computers. And this was the beginning of the mystery that sent me on this trajectory. That whole thing is a subject for another day. The important question that you can think about and start taking action on right now is, do you know whether there are any mistakes in your medical record or your insurance billing history? My billing history, it turns out, said that I had an aortic aneurysm. I've never had anything of the sort. So if that hadn't gotten corrected, my insurance history would say that I have a pre-existing condition that I don't. How fascinating. So, Find out you are legally allowed to see every bit of information that they have about you. So just go ask when it's not an emergency. Check your kid's information. Check your spouse's information, your mom, whoever you're taking care of. It's an easy way to start getting involved and starting to develop yourself as a powerful patient. In conclusion, I want to return to what I said in the very beginning. This is the best year ever to be getting health care. I saw an astounding blog post by a surgeon named John White back in 2012. He said more than two-thirds of all the human beings who have ever been 65 years old are alive today. Isn't that amazing? And the reason is because when I was born, a lot of people died in middle age, 40s, 50s, 60s. If you look at just a graph of the population, there weren't a lot of people who were 65 and older. And today, somebody who's 65 is quite likely to be not only alive, but very healthy and active and nowhere near retiring. The system works better than it ever has before. And it's funny, I have a college classmate named Jay who told me a few years ago, because I used to publish the alumni notes for my college class, that he was the first guy in his family to ever reach age, I don't know, 65, 67, something like that, because they all died of heart conditions. And his life has been saved a couple of times in the last 15 years by better medicine. And so what that means is we have this unprecedented world facing us of a huge number of people who are 50, 60, 65, 70, and older. And we better step up and do what we can to do our part so that the system doesn't get crushed by us. And yet, the flip side of this, as I said at the beginning, the system doesn't always work out great. In fact, 
One of the other things you can do before a crisis hits is go to a website called hospitalsafetygrade.org and look up the safety data on your local hospitals. So if you find yourself needing to choose a hospital, you may choose the one that's closest to you. You may choose based on any other reasons that are important to you, because after all, it's your choice. But I believe everybody ought to have a chance to know that there are safety differences, how how likely it is that a tool would get left in your mother's abdomen after surgery or post-surgical infection. I know people whose relatives have died from getting an infection that arose out of surgery, and there are differences. Some hospitals are better than others at preventing problems. I believe those hospitals ought to be rewarded by very happy families and so on. And the one just stunning thing from USA Today on September 17th, believe it or not, a hospital that got a bad safety grade actually said USA Today had reported that they had had five sewage leaks in that hospital. And the hospital replied only two of them were sewage leaks in the operating room. Now, wouldn't you want to know about that and that that's their attitude about it. Well, most of them weren't in the operating room. I say, do what you can to know what's useful. Make your own powerful choices. This show is made possible in part by the Social Health Institute. Through research and partnerships with healthcare organizations around the country, the Social Health Institute explores new and innovative ways for hospitals, healthcare organizations, to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategy. To learn more about the Social Health Institute, visit them online at socialhealthinstitute.com. That's socialhealthinstitute.com. I hope you'll come back and bring friends and do that thing that's so important to all podcasters. Rate us on iTunes and everywhere else because that boosts whether we show up high when people search for health podcasts. I'm very frank about my purpose in doing this. I just want to change the world in ways that matter to you, the health consumer, the person who has the needs for which the whole industry exists. So please let us know who you'd like to have on, what topics you'd like to hear about, anything. Remember, the World Bank says empowerment is increasing people's capacity to make choices about what they want and take effective action. This podcast really will be about helping healthcare achieve its potential by supporting and improving your power, the power of the patient. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.